Now, we're in the middle of this series, literally right, right now in the middle of this series, on God's heart for the poor, on addressing issues of poverty, on confronting greed, and things of that sort. Uh, it is, for many of us, a tough series. Uh, and and it, it's, it's causing a lot of us to, to wrestle with some things. And I've spoken with a number of you and some of the issues that you're going through. And I, I, I totally get that. I encourage you to hang in there. Some folks are, are feeling guilty. And I understand that. Been there, done that. When, you, when your eyes first open up to the radical uh, injustice of the world and the disparity between the haves and the haves-nots, sometimes you can feel guilty. But I want to just encourage you to remember that you didn't choose to be born where you were born. There's no condemnation to them which are in Christ. We're not to be feeling guilty for every little thing we have that someone else doesn't have. But the important thing is that we take all that we have and submit it to God, and he'll lead us and guide us on how he wants us to live out the kingdom with that. Some people have been frustrated. They, 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 they wake up to the reality of what's going on, and they want to do something right now. And they're a little frustrated that we haven't had more practical tips on that. And if you're in that sort of place, I want to encourage you to hang in there. Uh, This series was designed to first, uh, you know, kind of come out of the gate and help us to wake up to the reality of the the powers and how we're being played against one another and the reality of poverty. So it's been kind of, you know, in your face. Then the middle section of this series is meant to, to, to give a face to poverty, to make it more personal. The end of this series will be about what we can do, practical tips on, on moving forward in the kingdom. So just hang in there. And then there are some who are just a little frustrated because, well, who the heck spends 10 weeks talking about poverty? Uh, are we kind of going over the top here? You know, it, it's, it's too long. Uh, you know, you're, you're repeating yourself. Now, I want to encourage those of us who are there to also hang in there. Given how strongly emphasized this issue is in the Bible, I don't think having 10 weeks straight talking about it is disproportionate. Uh, Maybe it's because you've never been at a church that took 10 weeks out to talk about this, and that's why it feels really long. But in the sense of being in harmony with the Bible's emphasis, I don't think 10 weeks is too long at all. But even beyond that, you need to know that Woodland Hills Church was supposed to be a, a, a Woodbury church plant. And there came a point where God told us not to go there. God bless Woodbury. We love Woodbury. People from Woodbury come here. But we felt that God called us to, the word was, face the city. A year into our church life, we were called to face the city. And at the center of that call was this, this, this call to put on the front burner uh, the kingdom call for racial reconciliation the kingdom called to address issues of poverty. And so in many ways, this conference that we had this weekend and the series that we're in the middle of is really expressing something that God has put in our heart for a long, long time. And we really sense that this is one of those defining moments for us. I mean, for those of you who've been around for more than five or six years, I one time spent six months talking about love and judgment. Uh, you talk about spending too long on one topic, but it was a defining moment for us. And then we had a time where we spent a number of weeks talking about the two kingdoms, the cross and the sword. That was another defining moment for us. Well, this is a defining moment in our church. This is something that God has just, uh, he's turned up the heat on, and that's why we're hovering in this series. So I encourage you to hang in there. Collapse your judgment mechanisms. Try to receive uh, what what the Lord is saying here. And let's watch what God's going to be doing in our midst and through us. Uh, It's an exciting time. 
Uh, to do that now, this weekend, we have asked our dear friend, Ephraim Smith, to deliver the word. Ephraim, if you don't know, is a dear friend of mine personally. I've known him for 12, 13 years. Uh, we're close brothers in Christ. I love this man's heart. I love his ministry. I love what he's doing in the world. Uh, and I just love the way he can preach. So would you please give a warm Wooden Hills welcome to my good friend, Ephraim Smith. Come on up, brother. Well, I'm so excited to be uh, back with you. It's been a little while. Uh, some of you um, may not know that about seven years ago, uh, I, with a uh, core team of about 40 people, we um, ventured out within the Evangelical Covenant Church to plant a church in North Minneapolis that would be intentionally evangelical, multiracial, uh, uh, Christ-centered, of course, with a focus on uh, Christian community development. And uh, this church played a pivotal role in um, providing resources and blessing people to come with us. And so uh, we just are so excited. And I want to let you know that now here, seven months, seven months, seven years later, um, we uh, are a self-sustaining church. We have over 20 ministries, staff, a community development corporation. We are, we are very blessed. And um, this year alone, we saw 80 people give their life to Christ for the first time uh, through our ministry. So I just want to say thank you so much for your prayers, for the releasing of resources, for the blessing of people uh, to be a part of Sanctuary Covenant Church in North Minneapolis. Uh, right now, as I'm here, Greg Boyd is at Sanctuary preaching right now. So as I'm standing here, he's standing up there right now preaching uh, to our congregation. So uh, I'm excited about that. I want to read to you from uh, Matthew chapter 25. And I, and I should say off the bat, you know, because I've been here before, because uh, Greg and I are good friends. I, I hope this is okay. I'm not going to preach like I'm away from home, like I'm on the road. I'm going to preach like I'm at home. All right? So, um, now some of y'all clap it if you haven't heard me before. You know, what does that mean? He's going to preach like he's at home. Yeah, I'm going to try to do that, Lord willing. There is a word in Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 31. Jesus says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. From this text, sisters and brothers, I want to preach to you on the title, Compassion and the Kingdom of God. Compassion and the Kingdom of God. I realize now that ever since I was a kid, I have been thinking about, wrestling with, curious about the kingdom of God. Now, I didn't always use the term, the phrase, kingdom of God. As a kid, I knew the term heaven. And on Saturday mornings, when my younger brother Tremaine and I would, would get up to watch Saturday morning cartoons, we would spend all of Saturday morning watching these really righteous cartoons, the coyote and the roadrunner, Tom and Jerry, Bugs Bunny. Now on these cartoons, every once in a while, one of the characters would die. You know, the Acme product would blow up on the coyote. He would chase the roadrunner until he'd run off a cliff. But he must have been prepared for this because he had a sign that would say, uh-oh, help me. And then he would fall and he would die. Now, in cartoon land, if you're a good cartoon character, you go to heaven. And you know that the good cartoon character is going to heaven because he's got a white robe and, and, and wings and a halo and a harp, and he's floating upward into heaven. Now, the bad cartoon characters would go someplace else. Now, the only theological, doctrinal dilemma for the Christian is that 30 seconds later, there'd be a new cartoon episode, and that same character who died would be there. But outside of that, I learned as a little kid that if you were good, you went to heaven. But you know, you get older, you outgrow cartoon heaven. I thought about the kingdom of God, about heaven more intently during my freshman year in college. I went to a high school that was 70% black. Uh, I then, after graduating from Minneapolis North High School, 70% African-American, I attended my freshman year St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, where I was one of seven black students on the whole entire campus. <laughs> Needless to say, this was somewhat of a culture shock for me. I remember, um, one day riding the shuttle bus from St. John's University to the College of St. Benedict for a class because there was this co-ed partnership between the two schools. And I remember uh, people sitting three to a seat before they'd sit next to me. And uh, I, I remember, you know, having this struggle in making the adjustment from Minneapolis North High School to St. John's University to the point that um, one day I went into this place called the Great Hall. This was the original chapel sanctuary at St. John's University before the building of the new abbey. And I, I went in there to pray. And um, as I was praying, I looked up and I saw this big painting, this big mural of sorts, and it was heaven. It was the kingdom of God. And I knew this because there was this picture of Jesus and Jesus was on the throne and holding a lamb, representing that he is the lamb slain for our sins. There were angels, there were biblical characters. And as I was looking at this painting, I noticed that everybody was white. Like Jesus was white, the angels were white, 
the biblical character, the lamb, well, the lamb's supposed to be white, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and I hate admitting this. I, I hate admitting this, but at 19 years old, I looked at that picture and I wondered if there was a place in the kingdom of God for me. If there was membership in the kingdom of God for me, a role in the kingdom of God for me. I know that sounds silly. And, you know, as time went on, I made friends at St. John's University. St. John's became more diverse, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, 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 and as I grew spiritually, I learned more about the kingdom of God. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 25 is speaking to his followers, giving them within parables a deeper understanding of the kingdom of God, an understanding of the mission, the purposes, the values of the kingdom of God, and our invitation to be citizens in the kingdom of God and to also participate in the mission of the kingdom of God right here and right now. One of the things that Jesus lifts up as a value of the kingdom of God, as a part of the mission of the kingdom of God, as an element of participation in the kingdom of God is compassion. We are invited by God through Jesus Christ to be a vehicle of compassion, mercy, justice, truth, and transformation in the world. This is a pivotal part of not just being a citizen in the kingdom of God, but participating in the mission of the kingdom of God. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 25, in parables through story, talks about the kingdom of God. In the beginning of the chapter, in Matthew 25, he begins with the first parable. But leading into this, he says something in chapter 24, verse 42, when he says, Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. The kingdom of God is connected to the first coming of Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, coming out of the grave that we might experience, experience new life. But also the kingdom of God is connected to the return of Christ. The issue is what is our role as kingdom citizens between his coming for our salvation and his return for us in the culmination of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. What do we do in the in-between time? Jesus addresses this in part in Matthew 25. He begins with a parable about 10 bridesmaids. 10 bridesmaids. Jesus says that five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Well, what is the backdrop for this parable of the bridesmaids? Jesus here, in talking about the kingdom of God, makes a connection between the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman and the preparation for that with our being prepared, having a sense of urgency and anticipation about the return of Christ and what our work is until then. You see, in the culture in which Jesus was speaking, the preparing for a wedding went something like this. A man would ask 
uh, for uh, the hand of a woman in marriage. He would ask to her family for her to be his bride. If there was a yes, he would go to his father's house to prepare a place for him and his bride to be. He would go to his father's land and he would prepare, he would build a home for them to live and to grow a family. And uh, this is deeply connected to when Jesus in uh, John 14 says, I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not tell you this. And so when Jesus is talking about going into the kingdom of God, into the eternal to prepare a place for us and then to come back and get us. He is connecting the covenant between God and humanity made possible through Jesus with the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Could it be that the covenant relationship between a man and a woman is supposed to provide on some level a picture of the covenant relationship between God and humanity? And Jesus becomes the great groom to humanity that God through his love is pursuing. And so uh, a wedding preparation would look something like this. The groom-to-be is preparing a place for his bride-to-be. Now, the bridesmaid's job is to prepare the bride-to-be for the coming of the groom for the marriage ceremony. So the bridesmaids, they get up and, at the, and they help the, the bride-to-be get ready. They help her with her, with her wardrobe, with her, with her hair. They set up all the flowers. They, they set the scene. The musicians are coming. They're all setting up because this could be the day that the groom comes, but he doesn't come. So then they go home and they come back the next day and they help the bride get ready and they set up the flowers and the musicians get ready and they're anticipating, they're ready. He could come today, he could be today and he doesn't come. Well, after a while, some of the bridesmaids are like, I'm tired of that. I mean, some of the bridesmaids, they get an attitude every day. I'm coming in here helping you get ready, helping you with your hair and helping. I want to get married too. Maybe there's a boy that wants to ask me out. Maybe I should be dating. I'm helping you. I'm so sick of this. No. Some people in Christendom, some people in the body of Christ, when things don't go their way, they get a little angry, a little selfish, a little frustrated. They're like, why are we doing this? I thought he was coming back today. Where is he? But then there's another group of bridesmaids who are wise and prepared and on alert. Here is the message to us about the kingdom. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But he is going to return. And we need to have a sense of kingdom urgency and anticipation about his return. He could return tonight. He could return tomorrow. He could return next week. We don't know, but that's all a possibility. So what is our job until then? We are to have a sense of urgency and anticipation about the kingdom. This doesn't drive us, though, to selfishness and individualism. This ought to drive us to want to express and extend the love of God to as many people and as many places as possible until such time as our groom comes to get us. We 
are not to live in an isolated Christianity of individualism, but we are to be a vehicle of God's love, God's compassion, God's mercy, God's truth, God's transformation in the world amongst the poor, amongst those that are lost, amongst the marginalized, amongst those that are sick, those that are terrorized internally by forces that are demonic. It is you and I, we are invited and called to participate in the kingdom of God at this level. We are to have a sense of urgency about sharing what God has placed in us with other people. It is not a time to be selfish. It is not a time just to focus on us. It is a time to say until Christ comes back for us, we extend the love of God. We proclaim the kingdom of God to as many people and as many places as we possibly can. Jesus moves from this to another parable, another story. He shares a story around verse 14 about a master, a master who calls his servants, his slaves to him, and he gives them talents. I want you to think about that for a moment. A master who has servants, slaves, gives them talents, resources, and then sends them out, sends them away, off the, the plantation of work, if you will. He sends them out into a free world with the resources that he's dispatched to them. Some of them take the talents, the resources they've been given, and they multiply them. They expand them out. But there's one who takes the talent that he's been given and he buries it in the ground. It's almost like the attitude is, this is mine, it was given to me, it's now mine, and I don't want to lose it, it's for me, so I'm going to put it someplace where I know it is so nobody can take it or steal it or mess with it because it's mine. So then the master again calls the servants to him, and Jesus shares in this story that the foolish one was the one who buried their talent. What we are to learn here about the kingdom of God and participating in it is that we have the opportunity to take the gifts, the resources that God has given us and expand the kingdom. Kingdom advancement. Kingdom advancement comes through the multiplication and the expansion upon the resources that God has given us. Now, you need to see the depths of this story. A master who gives resources to his servants. Slavery in Jesus' day looked like this. Someone was a servant, a slave, primarily because they owed the master. They were in debt to someone. And so one of the ways to work off debt to someone was to become their slave. And then once you worked off the debt, you were free to go. But here is a master that instead of working his servants until they repay the debt, he instead frees them with resources. 
Oh, that tells you something about who God is and the kingdom of God. Because the bottom line is, sisters and brothers, because of sin, because of wickedness, because of rebellion, because of doing things our way, we have created a debt to God. And in the economic system of the kingdom of God, we are in debt. Oh, you do not want to get a bill mailed to your soul showing you how much you owe God. The interest rate that has been compounded because of our sin, because of our lying, because of our cheating, because of our individualism, because of our wicked ways. We owe God. You don't want to know the interest rate. You don't want to know how much you owe into the banking system of the kingdom of God. But God is so loving. God is so nice. God is so full of grace and full of mercy that instead of charging us for what we owe, God sends a stimulus package down here for my sins. Oh, that's what he did. That's what he did. I heard a preacher say, God bankrupt heaven and sent the greatest commodity, the most valuable thing in the banking system of the kingdom of God. He sent him down here. He bankrupt heaven. The NASDAQ of heaven went crazy when he sent Jesus down here. Instead of looking at my sin, oh, I feel like preaching. Instead of looking at my wickedness, he sends a stimulus package down here. So instead of me owing the master, the master not only cancels my debt, he then consecrates me with resources. The question becomes, have you one recognized that through Christ Jesus, your debt has been canceled? You owe God no debt based on sin, but you've been now given a call to stewardship where God has given us Talents, skills, resources, abilities, competencies, and we are supposed to take these resources, consider it kingdom capital that has been invested into your life. And you are supposed to take this kingdom capital and grow it. See it multiplied. Every time you tutor somebody, every time you volunteer, every time you go on a mission journey, every time you get in a relationship with somebody across race, across class, across ethnicity, whenever you extend yourselves out of your comfort zone, you are investing kingdom capital into the earth that the kingdom of God might be expanded. So not only are we called and invited to have a sense of kingdom urgency and anticipation, we are also called to kingdom advancement by expanding and multiplying the gifts, the resources that God has given us. Then Jesus moves on to where I began this sermon in verse 31, where Jesus deals with judgment and justice. If we are going to understand the kingdom of God and our role in it, we also must understand judgment and justice. Verse 31, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous asked, well, when did we do all that, Lord? When did we feed you when you were hungry or you were thirsty and we gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. As we are used by God, as vehicles of love, compassion, mercy, justice, truth, and transformation to the invisible, to the marginalized, to the poor, to the sick, to the incarcerated, to the broken, to the dysfunctional. We are in communion with our God. It is not just about we being a blessing to someone, but it is about we get blessed. We go deeper in our Christian formation. We get into the depths of what it means to be a disciple. We get right into the eye of the storm that we might see our Savior show up through us. I heard a preacher once say, when Jesus comes back, this is ultimate justice. But until then, it's just us. It's just you and I being used by God to expand the kingdom of God that the lost might be found and the hurting might be helped. Amen. Well, what does this look like? I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. What this looks like practically is this. When we go to the grocery store, we can no longer just be thinking about feeding those in our own household. You have an opportunity through this church, when this time is over, to go out into the lobby to that table called the hub and grab a grocery bag. And when you go shopping for Thanksgiving, don't just shop for your family, but think about the hungry. Think about the struggling. You know, my grandparents on my dad's side are from uh, a small town outside of a small town called Monroe, Louisiana. And um, during the summers, when I was growing up, my mom and dad would send me down to, to Monroe, Louisiana, outside of Monroe, really, to my grandparents' house. My grandparents lived in a house on a cotton field that they didn't fully own, working for the person who owned it. And they, they were not wealthy by any means. But man, I can tell you, if my grandmother had one bag of black-eyed peas, some flour, and one egg, she could make something happen. <laughs> my God. So on Sundays, my grandmother would get up early in the morning at like five before we would get ready for church and she would cook this big meal. They were not wealthy by any means. But, and you might not be into this, but my grandmother would cook macaroni and cheese, collard greens, yams, rice and gravy, chicken, smothered steak. I mean, if you're into that stuff, you, you might just be more the hot dish type. But for me, growing up in, in, in my particular uh, zone of heritage, that was kind of how we ate. You know, cornbread, you know, homemade biscuits, stuff, stuff like that. And, um, uh, you know, little grits for breakfast, you know, uh, the bologna that had the red, stuff on it. You had to like slice the bologna up and then take that red outside stuff off of it and then fry it up and with some miracle whip. Lord, I feel the Holy Ghost in here right now. I feel him. I feel him moving in this place. Just thinking about all of his goodness through something fried. Um, 
So my grandmother would cook all this food and then she'd start getting to dessert, you know, peach cobbler and sweet potato pie, Lord Jesus, and, um, and do all this. And, and this was my thought. Why is she cooking all this food? She can't afford this. My grandfather can't afford, why? And it's just my grandfather, my grandmother, me, my younger brother, Tremaine, my cousin, Keisha. Why is she cooking all this food? And I asked her one day, I just couldn't take it no more. Mama, grandmama, why are you cooking all this food? She said, baby, you never know who might come by. And I believe if I think about those less fortunate than me, not less fortunate than you, you're not that fortunate. <laughs> if I think about those less fortunate than me, it'll keep the blessing train rolling. So what I'm saying to you is when you shop in this holiday season just around the corner, don't just shop for you and your kids. Don't just shop for your boyfriend or girlfriend, husband and wife. You never know who might come by. You never know what opportunities God might bring by you to advance the kingdom of God. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. This word invited in the Greek does not just mean to have somebody over for coffee. This invitation in the Greek means to lead together. It means to invite somebody to the table that they then have the same dignity, the same mission. They share in the mission, in the journey, to the point that they're equipped and empowered to lead. Honor is bestowed upon them. It's to take in and come together. It's a reconciling term to invite the stranger. And God was thinking about the alien, the foreigner, the immigrant, if you will, because throughout scripture, God was always bringing the alien, the stranger, the immigrant into the covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. It starts in Exodus and moves forward. No, it starts before that because Abraham was an immigrant himself. He was in a place called Ur, uh, worshiping a moon god named Nanar. And God brought this pagan alien into a covenant relationship to be the father of a nation in covenant with God. The issue is, unless you're Jewish, uh, we're all immigrants spiritually. Through Christ Jesus, the Gentiles, you and I are grafted into this great covenant story. I mean, Jesus Christ and what he does for us, pagan Gentiles, is the greatest immigration policy ever known, period. And we're the immigrants, you and I. I mean, this is bigger than the Statue of Liberty saying, give us your tired, your poor through Jesus Christ. Give us your drug addict, your prostitute, your hater, your arrogant, your drug dealer, your, your, your person that's racist, your person that's sexist, the person that's swindling all the money, the person that's selfish, the person that gossips, the person that lies, the person that's holding stuff back. I mean, all of that. Give us all of that. Give us every hurting person, every broken person, every person tore up from the Thorah, tore up and Jesus Christ will transform them. I mean, I don't, half of what I just said right there, I don't even know if it came out grammatically correct, but you understand the spirit of what I'm trying to say. 
I was naked and you clothed me. It's not just about putting clothes on a naked person. I mean, if you see somebody just running around naked, don't just give them clothes. Call somebody. Call, uh, <laughs> call 911. People just running back and forth with no clothes. Woo! Call somebody. And don't look fully. Don't look fully at them. What this really is talking about today is there are many people out here exposed. They're exposed and they need covering. They need the covering of relationships, the covering of purpose and mission, love, understanding, community. How many children are out here exposed? How many adults, how many people struggling with mental illness are out here exposed and they need covering, they need love, they need to be clothed? I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. It's not just about seeing the sick. It's about relieving sickness. Look, the church can do something in the midst of all this heat and tension and debate about health care. The church doesn't have to be on the sideline. At Sanctuary Covenant Church, we have a vision to open up next year the Exchange Center for Compassion, Mercy, and Justice in North Minneapolis. And not only do we desire, as we raise the resources through our congregation, to open up this center to provide food and clothing, but we have a desire to have a free health clinic where you can get free immunizations and nurses and doctors will volunteer. Look, it's not about the politics. It's about the promise that comes through Jesus Christ that the sick can get cared for. I'm not waiting on Pelosi and Obama and Palenti and, and Rush and, who, and whoever. I'm going to follow Jesus who's given me the anointing and the calling to bring health care to the sick. It's not going to come from the Democrats or the Republicans. It's going to come through the word of God and the obedience of the children of God. If it, hey, maybe Woodland Hills and Sanctuary, we just need to open up a, a health care service clinic in the name of Jesus and let the healing begin. Let the healing begin. I was in prison and you came to me. We need to have a ministry where we can see those coming out of prison restored, transformed and restored into the fullness of community so they can reclaim their kids again, reclaim their spouses, but they can't do it alone. They need the church. Now, you might be saying, that kingdom compassion, man, that's a lot, Pastor Ephraim. I don't know if I can do it. Yes, you can. I'm not sure. Yes, you can. You know why? Because God has put everything in you to be a kingdom citizen and to advance the kingdom of God in the world. I want to close with this story. I want you to consider the Impala. Not the car, but if you, if you drive the car, the Impala, there's a little, little emblem with, with an animal. That animal is the African Impala. There is something as Christians we can learn from the African Impala. I have studied that the African Impala, from just the point of standing on all fours, can jump 13 feet in the air. That's how it escapes when a lion comes in to get after it. If it's drinking water and a lion comes, bam, Hakuta Matata. It can just jump up. Oh, you didn't get me. 13 feet in the air. 
the African Impala can jump from standing still. Now, if the Impala is running, if it's on the move, it not only can go 13 feet high, it can go 30 feet out. God designed it this way. It has all it needs from God to go 13 feet high and 30 feet out. Here's the dilemma. At the zoo, the African Impala is initially contained by a three-foot wall. Now, how can that be? The thing can go 13 feet high and 30 feet out, but if you put a three-foot wall in front of it, it will not jump. Because those who study the Impala have learned that if the Impala can't see where it's going to land, it won't jump. If you take its sight away, it has no faith. It's only going to jump if it can see where it's going to land. That's why many of us don't jump into issues of compassion, mercy, and justice. Not because we don't have the heart. We have the heart. It's just, it's hard to get over the three-foot wall. Because I don't know, if I start helping homeless people, where is that going to get me? If I start volunteering with kids that have no dads in the home at school, where is that going to get me? If I go to Haiti, what's that going to lead to? I don't have enough money. I'm trying to balance my family and my job. Matter of fact, I'm unemployed right now trying to find a job. How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? See, that's a three-foot wall. Fear, insecurity. If God is your Lord and your King and your provision and your empowerment, I don't care where you are right now in life, you can jump. You don't have to stay on the ground. You don't have to lay out. You don't have, you can jump. You get your feet up off the ground. Why would you jump? Because God looked into a sin-filled, dark, and wicked world, but instead of just pouring out wrath, he jumped up and sent his son, Jesus, into the world, and Jesus was on the earth, and he jumped for 30-some years. He jumped so that a blind man could see. He jumped into the crowd so a woman with an issue of blood could press and touch his clothes. He jumped so he could look at a dead girl and said, my daughter, arise. He jumped and called Lazarus out of the tomb. He jumped and a paralyzed man picked up his mat and he walked. He jumped and a legion of demons came out of a man who was cutting himself with stones. He jumped and a woman caught in adultery didn't have the death sentence and they arrested him and they beat him. They stripped him of his clothes. They put a cross on him. He carried it up on a hill. They put nails in his hand and nails in his feet, a crown of thorns on his head. They pierced him in the side. They gambled for his clothes. They spit on him. They joked about him and they put him in a borrowed tomb. But I heard that early Sunday morning, he jumped up out of the grave for me and you. And if he can jump, I can jump because he's in me. I dare you to jump. I dare you to get up off your feet. Get your feet up off the ground. Van Halen says, jump. Go ahead and jump. I ain't the worst that you've seen. Can't you see what I mean? Jump. Go ahead and jump. Jump around. Jump around. Jump up. Jump up and get down. I dare you to jump. Jump out of depression. Jump out of thoughts of suicide. Jump out of fear. Jump! Oh! My God, as we leave this place today, know that God loves you that much that he can lift you up out of your situation. I don't care where you are. You are not too broken to jump. 
You are not too old. God will lift you up off your feet. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me. Mm, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. God's love empowers us to jump. There are going to be prayer counselors up here. They would love to pray with you. They'd love to join you in the jump. God loves you that much that you can't stay on the ground. God bless you.